So you want to know why black people are so mad? Well, we'll talk about that after I talk to you for a few moments about the Bloodstain podcast. The Bloodstain podcast is my love child that I've been working on for the past eight months. If you're new here, I haven't been posting on here for the past eight months on my YouTube channel, and I have been kind of cocooning figuring things out. But what I've really been focusing on is researching for this project right here. The Bloodstain podcast, it is something I've been just obsessed with for the past eight months. It's all I can think about, all I can do anything for. And it is where history meets true crime. It is finally the mixture of true crime and history that I've been trying to find. And I hope that you guys can sense that too. The goal of Bloodstained is to take one singular historical event or historical institution, talk about it thematically, very granular, very detailed, and look at it through the lens of true crime. In this case, we will be discussing slavery. Season one is all about slavery as an institution. We'll be discussing it as a true crime story. So I hope you guys are excited for that. The first few episodes are going to be foundational. Um, We're going to talk about the Arab slave trade in this episode. Next episode is a triangle trade. We're going to talk about some more foundational things that will build on each other so that we're all kind of on the same mental space to talk about more of the other concepts down the road. There are 12 episodes of Bloodstain for the 12 months of the year. Pretty easy to follow. It, I will be dropping monthly, so make sure you're around for that. Bloodstained is episodic. It is not anthology style. So every episode builds on the previous episode. So it's important to start from the beginning. Um, I guess you could jump in wherever if you're interested in that particular topic. But I would say start from the beginning. In a world where there is increased censorship on history and the truth of how this country became what it was and who's to blame for where we are, I just wanted to make a audio and visual documentation of my research, how I feel about it, what I've learned, expressing it for free for the world to see, and using my sociology degree in the process. It was expensive. Slavery is a true crime story for many different reasons. It's not just the individual layer, the micro layer, the kidnapping, the physical violence, the torture, the abuse, all of those things, the murder, obviously. Slavery is also a true crime story because of the way that information about that time period and about that institution has been shared with us. It hasn't been. (laughs) Um, There are huge blind spots in our understanding of history if we're going based off of a K through 12 education. I think that's purposeful. I think the censoring of the truth allows us to be complacent people and not be able to recognize when slavery is happening right in front of our faces. What else is there to say? Like, like the video, comment. If you're listening, if you're an audio listener, hello, how are you? What's good? Tell me, give me advice on the audio stuff because I'm just starting to expand into that process now. Um, five star the five star this podcast. Let the people know. Let the people know that you like me. And also, just in general, a very special thank you to all of the subscribers that stuck with me, that didn't drop off, that um, still watched my videos, watched my old videos while I was gone. I really appreciate you because most people who take an eight month break from a smaller YouTube channel have a hard time bouncing back. I've been able to grow 
over a thousand subscribers during my hiatus, which is insane. So I'm just excited to be posting back for you guys again. And I am thrilled by your support. Um, a couple things, if you want to know more about me, what I'm doing in my day-to-day -day life, I'm opening up my life a little bit more. That was part of this whole eighth month, eight month process. The fear of looking stupid was holding me back pretty much. So if you're curious about any of those things, I have an entire sub stack. So if you hit the link in the description, hit the link tree, subscribe to my sub stack, either the free tier or the paid tier, which is $5 a month. Check me out. Um, yeah, love you guys. Mwah. Welcome to Bloodstained episode zero season one. Why are black people so mad? On October 27th, 2015, one of the greatest philosophers, sociologists, icons of our time, Isaiah Wells, cracked her knuckles and began typing a series of events that could only be rivaled by Homer's Odyssey. She had the entire world glued to their phones, waiting for the next tweet to drop. Zola, as you all probably know her to this day, typed out or should I say tweeted out, a 148 tweet thread describing a salacious saga of a world that's right under our noses that we don't have access to. After single-handedly creating and innovating the concept of a Twitter thread, getting countless celebrity shout outs, having hashtag this story trending worldwide on Twitter for days, a movie was finally made. I highly recommend it. In, dropped in 2020 during the pandemic, but it's iconic. It's on Tubi. You should watch it. Zola's story is really a story about two people falling out. An itemized list of how someone felt betrayed by someone they thought was a friend. A betrayal that knows absolutely no bounds. Betrayal is what Bloodstained Season 1 is really all about. The story of how white people and black people fell out if they were even together in the first fucking place. So you clicked on the video, you're curious about the title, you're hoping you get an answer for your question. You want to know why white people and black people just can't get along. Can we, can we all get along? Why black people are so pissed, so ornery, so loud and complaining. Well, in response to that very specific question, I offer you episode zero of Bloodstained. The only accurate way to open up Bloodstained season one, episode zero, is to recite the iconic question that Zola, Isaiah Wells, asked us all on October 27th, 2015. Y'all want to hear the story about why me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, and it's full of suspense. Welcome to Bloodstained, Episode Zero, The Foundation. Why are Black people so pissed? Let's talk about it. If I am being completely honest, this entire episode is like an afterthought. I had already written 12 scripts for the 12 episodes for the 12 months of the year that I plan to drop an episode of Bloodstained, right? And then I'm scrolling on TikTok, obviously, as I usually am, and I came across a video about the Arab slave trade. In that video, they go into detail about a concept that I had never learned in my entire life. I never knew existed. I never knew was a thing. So I was thinking about 
okay, well, Bloodstained season one is about slavery. It's trying to be a conversation about slavery as an institution, as a true crime story. We've discussed this by now. And it would be such an idiotic thing to leave out at least a little conversation about the Arab East African slave trade, just because it has to do with the region we're talking about, Africa as a continent, generational trauma, all of these things. And I just thought like, how could I not talk about this in a whole podcast series about slavery? That's so, especially out of ignorance, you know? So on a whim, I just decided to type up a script. These are broad strokes. These aren't deep details, but important broad strokes. What really happened was I combined two scripts and we'll see how it works today. I combined my script about different types of slavery, like the history of slavery as a concept in general, which was one of my earlier episodes for the series anyway, and my Arab slave trade broad strokes script because I just thought it would be, you know, they mesh well. I will tell you how they mesh well. Okay, before we get any further, disclaimer, because I know people are going to feel a type of way. This is my personal research project that I took the time to personally do myself. And I picked the topics that I thought were most exciting and important to me as a person. That being said, this entire series is going to definitely be a little biased. We're talking about the things that I reach for, the the scripts that I can make in my mind based off of my my worldview, and what I think is important. So we're always going to really be centering the Black American experience. We are, of course, going to sprinkle in some global context throughout the episodes, throughout the series. Of course, we have an entire episode on the Haitian Revolution coming up. We have, obviously, this episode, we're going to talk about some um, of the Maroons and slave rebellions. We're going to talk about a lot of global global things and some of the differences between um, slavery in the uh, South and Central America and the Caribbeans versus slavery in the colonies. Of course, that is something we are going to talk about. Feel free to comment how you feel. Holla if you hear me down below. Five stars this video, like this video, you know the T, whatever it means. Um, but I just want to say that on the front end, just because I just think it's important because I don't want to hear people complain about it in the comments later. This specific episode is tasked with providing important historical context, foundational knowledge, so that we can all dive in to the topics that we will be getting into further down in the series. We are going to be talking about the Arab slave trade by way of trying to confront the conversation point, the comment that I'm sure all of us have heard by the worst person that we've ever met. That person, when this conversation comes up, that has to say, hey, Africans weren't the only people enslaved. First of all, can we talk for a second? The person that says Africans weren't the only people enslaved are just so like, they're those people that insist on playing devil's advocate for every point ever made to add perspective to a conversation when in actuality they're hiding behind playing devil's advocate all the time. I just wish more people 
said things with their chest so I knew how to treat you. But people be cowardly out here. And the person that says that to me, it's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle for so many reasons. Because that is a bad faith statement. It is a bad faith argument altogether. What you're trying to do is use this technical knowledge in order to dismiss very real points from my people of speaking on how they're oppressed by a system created out of slavery. You're purposely putting that into the conversation to try and silence people's very real cries for help because so much came out of slavery, which you will learn in this podcast. Rant over. Sorry. So the real reason why I started this episode is because I got a comment on a TikTok that I posted, a TikTok talking about the era of slave trade, and it said the following, you really need to learn how to use reliable sources put at even before Christ, and it was never race-based as other Arabs were also considered enslaved and so were Europeans, period. Try again, period. Well, user 123325, I copied and pasted your comment from my TikTok word for word, typos and all love, in order to use this as a jumping off point for the podcast, as well as a kind of selfish way to fit in talking about the Arab slave trade within this podcast series. So as we stated before, while technically user 123325, you are definitely correct. There was a diversity of people who were enslaved by the Arab slave trader. We all know that you're being purposely obtuse in order to dismiss what I was saying. That was a very real conversation. So let me prove it to you. Let me explain how even though you tried to dismiss it, the era of slave trade contributed to a racial hierarchy that we still live within to this day. How the Arab slave trade routes are still opened in terms of domestic workers who are glorified slaves in Arab countries. And while we're at it, let's just add in a little history lesson on slavery as a general concept, the different types of slavery throughout history, and how the transatlantic slave trade as it stands and the Arab slave trade as it stood are uniquely different than slavery of the past and how they contributed to our negative racialized hierarchy that we as a global society exist within while also while also providing necessary context to how the african continent as a whole has suffered from so much generational trauma and exploitation that it is a true crime story it is purposeful it is premeditated to the point that even the history itself when it's delivered to you that is a true crime story in and of itself. The working definition of slavery, according to Merriam-Webster, is the following. There are four different definitions. The practice or institution of holding people as chattel involuntarily and under the threat of violence. Two, the state of a person who is forced usually under the threat of violence, to labor for the profits of another. Three, a situation or practice in which people are entrapped as if by a debt 
and exploited. And four, that doesn't really have to do with what we're talking about, but kind of. Four, submission to a dominating influence. Now, what historians can do is use context clues to kind of approximate when slavery was kind of maybe started or at least how far we at this time period can trace it back to. In general, slavery um, was not really a thing that the hunter-gatherer communities were really big on. Slavery predates the existence of the written word that we can understand or that has survived the test of time. So using that information and using those context clues, historians have been able to basically track slavery to its oldest point that we can trace it to. And that is from the oldest surviving text that reference slavery, which is from 11,000 years ago. It's called the Code of Hammurabi, and it's from ancient Mesopotamia. Now, the Code of Hammurabi is a very old surviving text, partially destroyed. What has survived is 282 different laws that provide all of us with a slice of what it was like to exist at that time period. It covers things like contract law, family law, divorce, custody, um, liability law, all sorts of different laws that kind of give people like us in 2024 a slice of what it would be like to live in that society at that time. In those laws, amongst those laws, there is a law that references slavery that remains to this day the oldest reference of slavery that we have in our possession historically. One of the most important aspects of decoding the Code of Hammurabi is understanding the way in which they discussed their laws. All 282 laws were in the if-then format. So if this happens, then that happens kind of format. So the if-then format is used in order to reference slavery at its oldest point that we can trace, which also signifies a bigger thing. Because it's using this format to describe this particular law regarding slavery, referencing slavery, it is very possible to deduce from the evidence, wink, wink, that slavery predates this written text that we have for hundreds of thousands of years. The way in which it's written in the Code of Hammurabi suggests that slavery is a well-oiled machine that exists within common Babylonian society and has for centuries, maybe thousands of years, predating this text. Now, this is all conjecture, of course, because we don't have any older references of slavery, but we are using the way in which they wrote these laws in order to kind of deduce that slavery existed before this time. The slavery reference in the Code of Hammurabi, 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 the way the Code of Hammurabi references slavery goes as follows. I'm reading it off of a teleprompter app. Bear with me. If anyone finds runaway male or female slaves in the open country and bring them to their masters, the master of the slaves shall pay him two shekels of silver. If anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. This is our oldest reference of slavery as you can see, the way it reads, it's clear that slavery predates the existence of this text. Now, ancient Sumeria is a place that's most often credited with being the origin 
of slavery as a concept. So we have the Code of Hammurabi that references slavery in its earliest form, but Sumeria is credited with being the earliest birthplace of slavery as a concept. What is thought and widely discussed by historians as to being the chain of events is that it rose to being popular in Sumeria, then it spread to ancient Greece, and from there it spread to ancient Mesopotamia, and from there it spread across the European continent. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that the ancient East was very slow on accepting slavery as a means of production. They kind of held off for many years before they adopted it as a way to grow and expand their empire. China did not reference the use of slavery until the Qin Dynasty in 221 BC. Even though it's a hotly debated topic amongst people discussing this kind of stuff, um, it is often believed that India did not adopt slavery until around the same time. The daily lives of slaves during ancient times is something to talk about because it is said by them, the historians that say this, that basically a slave during these ancient times in these ancient places like Sumeria or Mesopotamia or what have you had better lives than the peasants of those places. Now, I'm inclined to believe that in the sense that they had regular sources of food, they had access to clothes, and they were looked after by some sort of doctor from their master because they were an actual investment, obviously, and their master wanted to get their money's worth from their investment. So historians say that they had a better life minus the forced labor. They also say that it was super atypical for masters to mistreat their slaves and even more atypical for slaves to even run away. The reason why people were enslaved, this is kind of pre-transatlantic slave trade and pre- Arab slave trade turning to the African continent for bodies. But the reason why you were enslaved was more of a fluid thing. It was more kind of chill. It was like, okay, I'm in debt. You know what I mean? Or it's like, okay, like I was born into a family of slaves, you know? Or like I um, was a prisoner captured from a rival tribe or group of people. Or I was a criminal and I was being punished for my crimes. So you could be a slave for any, many, many different reasons, and those reasons were general. So anybody of any race could become a slave depending on what they did and where they did it. Another important thing, what was considered slavery specifically in ancient Egypt would be considered like serfdom in other places. And being a serf is basically being a slave, but you're like an agricultural laborer. So you work the field, you work the field, you work the field. Some of the biggest differences of being a serf in ancient Egypt and being compared to chattel, racialized chattel slavery in the Americas is that you were usually required to work one to three days. You owed one to three days of the empire. It was still forced labor, obviously. Or, you know, you were used for the harvest season to harvest the crops for the empire, or the men would be forced to work in the mines for the empire. You know what I mean? But for like a season. It wasn't every day. It wasn't all the time, but that still was your state of being. I think one of the other biggest 
biggest differences between being a serf and being a racialized chattel slave, user 123325, is the fact that there was no family separation. It was extremely frowned upon. I think it was even put into law that serfed serf families could not be separated or sold separately. You take one, you take them all, which is why a lot of serf serfs would work the same plot of land for the same master for generations. So something that was used as a very specific torture point for African chattel slaves in the Americas, in the Caribbean, in Arab slavery, um, was shrouded and protected in law when it came to being a serf in ancient Egypt. You were protected, your family was protected, that was respected, um, which I think is a very interesting pain point. Um, The ability to build a family and build community and build support without the threat of all of that being taken from you at any point in time. It is incredibly important to distinctively discuss slavery as a general concept, but going into detail about the different slavery different people had to confront, the different types of slavery that they had to face. Your identity did determine what kind of slavery that you would ultimately have to face. We will get into more of an example of that in a moment. In general, slavery as a concept is morally wrong. It's all forced labor. It's all bad. But there are certain specific differences that made chattel slavery, racialized chattel slavery, particularly evil and sinister um, that we can all agree on that didn't exist in other forms of slavery. You get what I mean? What is chattel slavery? Now, chattel slavery is what is the type of slavery that was used in that transatlantic slave trade. It is the type of slavery that was practiced in the American colonies, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And it basically is lawfully changing a human being's status from being a human to being property. Now, that is another thing that is different between slavery, serfdom, and other types of slavery previous to this. It was not common under the law that the human status of a slave was stripped away. That is something that was unique to chattel slavery, specifically racialized chattel slavery, where you and your existence as a human being was reduced down to being a thing. And the laws regarding you were laws of property and not laws of another human being. So just to be clear, under the transatlantic slave trade, me, a black woman, would technically under the law not be considered any more than like a cow or a rake or a means or a tool to use for production purposes on your farm or whatever, breeding purposes, whatever. But that uh, legally under the law, I was not considered a human person, but you are a human person. So it's like that weird duality of understanding what you actually are But under the law, having that be told to you, like you are just not a human, you're a rake, you're a plow, you're a hoe. Pretty dark, pretty sad. But again, another example of how slavery can easily fit into the idea of a true crime story in the sense that 
Um, there is a premeditated nature of eroding the humanity of specific groups. So in many legal systems, specifically in Europe, um, your property is separated by two different things. There's real and fixed property, and then there's chattel or movable property. Chattel is really another word for cattle, which is basically the most prime example of what movable property is. At different points in time, in different places, slaves would be considered either fixed or movable property, depending on who you were asking, depending on who you were, depending on your identity, and depending on where you were enslaved. Again, Another difference between serfdom and chattel slavery. Serfdom was considered real property or fixed slavery, where you were fixed to a specific location. You were a master's slave for generations, and your generations of people were slaves. Chattel slavery, again, as we are pointing out, is literally cattle. Cattle slavery. You are an animal at best to be moved. So again, a very clear distinction between serfdom, chattel slavery, the differences of who adopted serfdom, who adopted chattel slavery, and why black people are so pissed that you guys don't want to understand this. Very simple conversation. Slavery is slavery, for sure. No one's playing the oppression Olympics, but in this case, lawfully, under the law, under the records, there is a clear distinction between what we as a people, as a diaspora experience versus what other races experienced when it came to what slavery was. That was ancient times with serfdom and things like that. Then we go through the Middle Ages, which is 500 AD to 1500 AD. And basically that entire region of the world was in chaos, was in war constantly with one another. And that is when the idea of slavery maybe becoming a global concept started to take shape because people were being kidnapped from where they were during war and sold into slavery at another place across the world. So the idea of global slavery started to become a thing. Before, in ancient times, it was very much a local thing. You know, we captured these people when we were in war. Now we're selling them to the local people within our empire's gates. During the Middle Ages, it brought slavery as an institution from an insular thing to a global thing because slaves were being kidnapped and taken across the world and sold into slavery to work in places they had no idea existed. King Charlemagne. And no, not Charlemagne from the Breakfast Club, not Charlemagne the ever-living goddess. No, no, no. King Charlemagne is basically credited for bringing stability to Europe post-Middle Ages chaos. He basically was able to unite big areas of land in Europe to become the Europe we know to this day. He basically did that, though through slavery he would sell his own people capture his own people his own people and sell them into slavery he used that money to be able to expand europe and basically form a formidable european front by doing this though he was pretty much responsible for the popularity of european slaves 
being used in the Arab slave trade. You're wondering how we were going to get here. We're here now. Let's get into it. Arab slave trade. Let's go. Okay. The Arab slave trade is the start of the global slave trade. They, they are the OGs. They are the originals. They are the baddest bitches on the block. They are the ones that started the global slave trade post-Middle Ages. The Middle Ages opened it up as a concept, but the Arabs really were able to make it a business. Now, what a lot of people don't know, what I didn't know, the Arab slave trade both predates the Atlantic slave trade and postdates the Atlantic slave trade. So at a point, the continent of Africa had two slave trades actively working within it on both the east and the west coast of the continent, funneling people from Africa to different parts of the world. The transatlantic slave trade, as we know it, took people through the triangle trade, which is next episode. We'll talk more in detail about the triangle trade, baby. Um, They took... Africans through the triangle trade to the Americas, to the Caribbean, to the colonies, to Europe. We know that. Now, the East Africans, though, took the Africans to places like Qatar, Egypt, um, the Red Sea, India, as far as India, um, and all other Arab nations in what is considered the Middle East to this day. It started in the 7th century. It lasted for 1,300 years. Again, it both predates the transatlantic slave trade and postdates the transatlantic slave trade. It, it, it ran longer than the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, can we talk about that? So it's important to understand, and we'll get more into detail about this, but the Arab slave trade is responsible for spreading Islam throughout the continent of Africa. But the spread of Islam from the 7th century on um, is like a one-for-one in tandem growth with the growth and popularity of slave trade used by Arab nations. As you probably assumed millions of African men and African women and African theys and thems and African people. We were um, kidnapped and sold into slavery. They estimate around 17 million. Now, again, the thing with things like slavery and topics like this, um, it's such an old concept that record keeping or the survival of certain records could change everything about this concept we're only going based off of what we hear or what the last reference was of this slave trade existing so people have deduced it's purely estimation that 17 million africans were enslaved through the arab slave trade now some people say as much as a hundred million africans but a lot of people widely believe between 20, 17 to 20 million is probably the most widely be- believed amount. A hundred million is to some people asinine in the sense that they claim that there wasn't that many people in the African continent at the time. So they say, okay, it's between 17 or 20 million, which is still a lot. And again, still great estimation just in the sense that so many people died in the slave trade. We will talk about why. Um, It was extremely deadly. The conditions were extremely dangerous. So again, incalculable, incalculable, incalculable loss. Now, many of the African women um, were taken into 
slavery, if you know what I'm saying, sex slavery, um, by the Arab slave traders and uh, the African men had a various, many other slave jobs that they would do. They could be guards, they could be soldiers. Most often Africans were tasked with guarding the harems, which is where a lot of the deaths came from. Seriously, how would that make sense? Well, let me tell you. Um, the people who were in charge with guarding the harems were typically the Africans. Um, that's what they were tasked with because as user 123325 stated in their wonderful typoed out comment, um, there was a lot of different people who were enslaved by the Arabs. That is to be seen. Again, we talked about the Europeans being enslaved. You know, they enslaved a bunch of other people, but there was a range as to where they would fit in terms of slavery and what their specific jobs were based on their race. So, um, for example, so Indians and Nubians were thought to be the best to guard people like bodyguards or property. Now we have the Bantu people were the best servants and they were the best at guarding the harems. They're also the best laborers, and they were the best eunuchs. We will get to that in a second. The Turks and the Slavs were considered soldiers. I don't know if I said that right. Now, let me go back to what I was saying about the men's jobs, that specifically African men's jobs in this slave trade. Again, I told you, user 123325, obviously race is important in the Arab slave trade because it literally determined where you were a slave and what you did and what you committed to. But... Specifically for African men, um, again, the harem thing, eunuchs, being a eunuch. What's that like? Anyway, being a eunuch, um, African men were castrated because they were thought to be the best guards for the harem. And that required them to be castrated, meaning they were eunuchs. Now, this made the Arab slave trade incredibly deadly because a lot of these African men on the journey were castrated and succumbed to their wounds of being castrated. What they have estimated is around six out of 10 enslaved African men died on the journey due to complications with their botched castrations. Okay, can we talk about that? So again, user 123325 pointing out how race definitely has a lot to do with this conversation and also determined the um, high death rate of this slave trade when it came to Africans specifically just because of all the castrations they had to endure um, to prevent breeding. Other form of why that Arab slave trade was so deadly was the route that these slaves would have to take to get to where they were being sold. So about 8 million of the enslaved Africans went through the Trans-Sahara Road, and that road is from East Africa to Egypt or Morocco, where they would later be sold and taken God knows where. Um, the other route that was taken where the other 9 million, estimated 9 million slaves were taken, was around the Red Sea, uh, where they would be sold to places like India and stuff like that. These routes obviously were very dangerous, very little water, very little care obviously a bunch of people walking around with a bunch of castrations child so you know it, people didn't survive so that was another aspect of what made this specific thing so deadly and why it is truly 
um, almost impossible to calculate the total loss of the Arab slave trade, but it was a lot. Come closer, user 123325. There was also a distinction amongst race, as you could imagine, because it determined what job you had in the Arab slave trade. Um, and there was gradations and hierarchy. Most um, people would prefer to get white European slaves. Those slaves were often able to have access to power and control that slaves that came from Africa did not have access to and would never have access to. An early chronicler, Jashiari, writes an anecdote about a man called Abdul Hamid, who was apparently the secretary of the last Umayyad Caliph. The story goes that the Caliph had received a gift of a black slave from a provincial governor. The Caliph was unhappy with him and told his secretary to write a letter of gratitude and disparagement. Abdul Hamid wrote, Had you been able to find a smaller number than one and a worse color than black, you would have sent that as a gift. Another thing is how they would talk about the white slaves versus the black slaves or the African slaves. The white slaves were owned, but they were still people. The Africans were slaves. That was their only state of being. So again, a gradation, a hierarchy starting to form based off of race, even in the Arab slave trade even in the Arab slave trade. So user 123325, if race determined what job you could get under being enslaved by the Arab slave trade, um, it could determine how that glass ceiling affected you. It could determine whether you lived or died. Would you then consider that race was definitely a part of the Arab slave trade and considering how they talked about African slaves in their text and how they were just slaves, maybe there was a racial hierarchy that formed. Let me explain this to you. Maybe this will help clear it up. Because getting European slaves started to become popular, it was a boom-bust situation. It was a boom because King Charlemagne was slaying his slaves for money to unify Europe. And those slaves were highly popular and sought after in the Arab slave trade. But then Europe got their military together. But then Europe got combative and started to protect the people that were formerly being sold as slaves by way of the king, right? So... Whenever the Arab nations that were skilled armies would come and try to attack to get more slaves from Europe and all of that, the European armies were able to stop them in their tracks and the frontier started to harden. So that was no longer a viable place for them to get slaves, no matter what the demand was in the Arab slave trade. So what did these people do? What did they do? Well, they turned to Africa. They turned to Africa as a never-ending, flowing faucet of human labor. And through that, the hierarchy of race got hardened, even though it still existed before then, when there was more diversity in the Arab slave trade, it hardened because all they could do at this point was use Africa for its human labor. These are how these things become real and become true 
is beca because they become reified. This is how these things become reified and solidified as socially normal. It's the more you view it, the more you're told it, the more you believe it. So these hierarchies in the Arab slave trade had been existing, but then they could no longer get the European slaves anyway. So now what it meant to be a slave was essentially to be African. Now, another popular cop-out for people like user 123325 when they talk about the Arab slave trade or try and comment on it to say, oh, you know, it wasn't about race, da-da-da-da-da. They talk about the religion aspect, so I'm going to quickly touch on that as well. The reason why the Arab slave trade was responsible for spreading Islam throughout the continent of Africa was because of how Islam was central in the Arab slave trade. Now, let me explain. Let me give you some historical context here. Okay, so unlike Christianity, which was used to both justify the transatlantic slave trade as well as demonize it, so it just proves that Christianity can be whatever you want it to be, but that's a that we'll save that for a slavery and Christianity episode further down. The role of Islam and the Quran in the Arab slave trade was fairly consistent, was fairly constant, which was because it didn't explicitly condemn the act of enslaving people and uh, working in this slave trade, it supported it. So because that stayed consistent, there were rules that were applied to um, kind of keep Islam at the center of the Arab slave trade, meaning you could not enslave another Muslim. That goes against the Quran. So that meant that uh, as a means of self-preservation, a lot of these African nations converted to Islam to protect their population from being taken into slavery during the Arab slave trade. So you wonder why religion spreads. You wonder why these things happen. It was a form of self-preservation. Now, that didn't always protect um, Africans from being enslaved. Um, Nubia had a... Um, contract with um, some Arab nations to constantly provide them slaves. They still sold their people into slavery and they were still accepted as slaves. So there is some wiggle room. That rule usually held hard and fast if you were actually also Arab or from a different country and happen to be Muslim. Um, if you were black and Muslim, there was, you know, wiggle room as to whether or not they wanted to respect that or not. Typically, if you were black and Muslim or your nation converted to Islam, you were going to be used as slave catchers because you knew the terrain better. So again, similar to the Atlantic slave trade, um, slavers that were also African would go in, capture slaves, from different tribes and sell them out and it would be a process kind of like a little every stop along the way scavenger hunt to when they would finally be you know taken into slavery somewhere in an Arab country and transported and stuff like that so while technically yes user one two three three two five the Arab slave trade was extremely diverse and wasn't always about race it became about race and there was a lot of race hierarchy that was deduced from how the Arab slave trade uh, conducted itself. Race determined your job, race determined your experience. Even if you were Muslim and African, that may or may not help you or save you in terms of being enslaved. So race definitely had a part in this. It definitely was central to this. Um, 
Obviously, religion was a central piece as well. But again, if you were African, there was wiggle room with that. The holiest site ever where people take their pilgrimage to Mecca, if you are a Muslim, that is the holiest site, um, was one of the most booming slave trade places ever. Um, It was booming because... This was a global intersection. It was a global market. A lot of people from different places would come there and sell stuff. It also was um, a booming slave trade because moving humans across big uh, amounts of land to get to Mecca would basically ensure or help protect your cargo. So if you were carrying like little things like jewels or ivory or things like that, that could be easily picking up and stolen If you steal a human being from these group of people, it's harder to do so. So basically, it was the... It was the preferred way to travel if you were trying to sell things in Mecca is to be able to sell slaves because you could probably get the most profit and have most of your inventory there when you tried to sell it. So the East African Arab slave trade reached its peak similarly around the same time as the transatlantic slave trade really beginning. It started to really reach its peak during that period. Arab slave trade was still going strong because they were going based off of Islamic law and not Christianity laws of morality. Now, This is when they got the eyes of the colonizer on them and the colonizer did everything they could in order to shut slavery down for the Arab slave trade. They tried treaties, they tried a bunch of different stuff, but what they ended up doing is as the Ottoman Empire fell, think about that, that was World War I when the Ottoman Empire fell. So again, we're going past even the Civil War at this point that the Arab slave trade is existing. The Ottoman Empire falls in that region and European nations become quickly are biting at the carcass of what was the Ottoman Empire, splitting it up amongst themselves and, you know, consolidating power in the region. Because they were able to do that, they were able to basically starve out the people who still or the nations that still paid in and dabbled in the Arab slave trade, which basically ensured that it would eventually end. Even though a lot of people say the last slave has yet to cross into the Arab slave trade just because those very same slave routes, slave channels from Africa to Arab countries are used to this day to get very cheap domestic labor. So some say, you know, the Arab slave trade never really ended. Others say that it ended around the 1950s. So. In conclusion, let me just kind of wrap this all up with a bow, episode zero, so you understand what I'm talking about, why I'm talking about it, and the point that I'm making. Let's get in conclusion with this bitch. Even though technically different types of people were enslaved over history, that doesn't mean that they were all enslaved the same. And when you go into researching these different types of slavery, ancient Egypt, being a serf, being in the Arab slave trade, and how that was diverse at the start, 
you look into these things and you still see the same thing. Your identity, where you came from, still determined your privilege and your hierarchy and your rank within those societies at the time. Even in the Arab slave trade, even though it was diverse, African slaves still had the highest death count in terms of transportation. They had the most lowly jobs that required castrations. And all sorts of different things. They were considered slaves. They were not preferred. They were not sought after. They were only an option once Europe closed its borders to allowing their people to be enslaved. So even if it technically enslaved other people, it still in and of itself had the racial hierarchy that we know to be true to this day. Now that's number one. Number two, (laughs) which I think is incredibly important in this whole conversation is highlighting the differences amongst the slavery that other people experience. If we are saying as a group that as a collective, that there was different forms of slavery that different people were the victims of, we can't sit here in good faith and just say that being a serf in ancient Egypt was the exact same experience as being a American chattel slave that was race-based and there was different constraints on what you could do. That's just a bad faith argument. And I'm tired of those fucking arguments because it prevents people from actually getting to the meat and the interesting part of the conversation. We need to be able to move past these things. We need to be able to move past people being able to put up these false flag things that lose us in conversation. Yes, slavery has been a concept that existed and predated just African chattel slavery. Yes, but when we are specifically talking about the slave conditions of being an African chattel slave in racialized chattel slavery through the transatlantic slave trade, we are speaking on a very specific experience that is 100% race-based, that is 100% discriminatory, and it is 100% still in existence to this day. It is also 100% how we decide and determine value in the society that we exist in to this day. So... I say all this to say, because I I do need to wrap this up. I really do. Um, User one, two, three, three, two, five. Now that we went on this long journey together, I think it's important for us to wrap it up with me saying a couple things. Okay. Why did I choose these topics? Why is this episode zero? What is going on? How is this a true crime story? Well... There's so many answers to those questions, but what I will say is this. We all need to be on the same knowledge foundational basis to move on within the series because more difficult conversations are going to be had and more difficult questions are going to be asked of you. So we need some foundational knowledge. And I thought it would be best to provide at least the most foundational knowledge in episode zero, which is what is slavery? How long has slavery existed? What is slavery defined as being? And what is the history of slavery in our modern world? I also wanted to use this episode to address user one, two, three, three, two, five, of course, because they use both the concept of not only Africans were being enslaved, and the Arab slave trade in their comment towards me to try and dismiss me from what I was trying to get at in the conversation. So it was a perfect entry point because I think 
the Arab slave trade as it stands as a forgotten, forgotten piece of history is an incredibly important part to lay the foundation of understanding the African continent. A lot of us don't understand why Africa is the, the victim of so many attacks from by so many nations, why it's constantly exploited and constantly pillaged and constantly taken advantage of, why its people were stolen over and over again by all these different sources all the time, why our history is so much about domination by other people. And I think that the Arab slave trade, having both predated and postdated the transatlantic slave trade, is an incredibly important important foundational layer to discuss so we understand what the continent of Africa has been through. It's been fractured. It's been exploited. Our people been stolen for years before the transatlantic slave trade. And so I think some of the more existential questions like why Africa, why this, why that get answered by way of this conversation. Africa as a continent has been exploited by many different nations, many different times, in many different ways. Some that we know, some that we don't know, some that are still happening to this day. Free the Congo. Free Sudan. You know what I'm talking about, Joe. And last but not least, how is this a fucking true crime story? I know this is going to be a constant question. And again... I think it's really important that we always end every episode with how this is a true crime story. There's a couple layers to this. There's the actual micro layer in that we are talking about individuals making choices about humanity. So in the individual layer, in the micro layer, the violence of enslaving another human being, the torture, the forced castrations, the forced labor till you die, the forced labor in general is a true crime story, period, point blank, period. There is a clear victim. There is a clear predator. There is a clear crime being committed. And that crime is somebody being forced, tortured, threatened with violence into doing something they do not want to do. At its core, slavery is a true crime story. But in the mega, in the macro, in the big sense, in the big brained sense, it's also about how we are taught about slavery that makes it even more of a true crime story. The active censoring, the active erasure, the active um, sanitization of the history of slavery from our day-to-day knowledge is a true crime story meant to allow us to be numb to the existence of slavery in our day-to-day society that we face right the fuck now. We will get to that in later episodes of Bloodstained, how slavery has persisted, slavery by another name. But we have to take everything to task. We, At this point, we're laying the foundation of the lies, of the deceit, of the exploitation purposefully. In later episodes, we will talk about the mega, the macro, the way in which we are conditioned to think about slavery that allows for slavery to continue to happen under our watch during this time. So, a lot to think about. That is episode zero, season one of Bloodstained, of the Bloodstained podcast. I hope you're excited, because I am fucking pumped. 
Um, as always, Black Lives Matter, Free Palestine until it's backwards, as you fucking know. And I'll see you next month with another episode. We will be talking about the triangle trade, most known as the transatlantic slave trade. We'll finally be getting into episode one of laying the foundation of bloodstained proper. But yeah, thanks for listening. Ah. <laughs>